for illumination. Heavenly Father, may we use these moments to be attentive to your word, and may its reading, its ministry to us, and our response to it, may it all be pleasing, uh, pleasing to you above all, that we may receive your word with joy and understanding and appreciation, that we would live that out each day that you give to us, by the blessing of your spirit. May he enlighten our paths and bring a light to our hearts, Father, through the word that is pro proclaimed tonight. We'd ask that you'd hear us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 8 tonight as we also carry on in our series on the Belgian Confession. And that Belgian Confession series brings us to Article 25, which is at least the version we're looking at the book where we're finding that is in the Psalter Hymnal, page 83, the abolishing of the ceremonial law being mentioned there. We're going to be reading in the light of that portion of our confession, looking to the light of the gospel, the light of the word of God, Hebrews chapter 8, and we'll read the uh, 13 verses there. Here's God's word. Now this, now the point, what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne, of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Not if he were on earth. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one 
obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So we thank God for this portion of his word. We take a look also then, uh, having read from the scriptures, at our confession in Article 25, the abolishing of the ceremonial law. We believe that the ceremonies and symbols of the law ceased at the coming of Christ and that all the shadows are accomplished so that the use of them must be abolished among Christians. Yet the truth and substance of them remain with us in Jesus Christ in whom they have their completion. In the meantime, we still use the testimonies taken out of the law and the prophets to confirm us in the doctrine of the gospel and to regulate our life in all honorableness to the glory of God, according to his will. May God's word indeed be a blessing to us this evening. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that we've mentioned in times past, we even had a series of Bible studies a couple of years ago, that way that we where we talked about how in the Reformed faith, there is this sense of, historically, there's this sense of a, a faith of balance that has, has occurred, that has arisen. Not so much that muddied middle or moderation that we carry on in, in that regard, but, but rather one that, that stays away from the extremes that aren't true. And, uh, and the Christian faith in the Reformed perspective does that in a lot of different ways. And we see one of those ways here also, uh, where we consider how it is that New Testament believers are supposed to respond to the Old Testament, how we're supposed to view it. Because on the one hand, uh, we find that we're not to live as like we live in Old Testament days or as they used to live in Old Testament days. But on the other hand, we're not supposed to be dismissing the Old Testament scriptures either. Uh, we need to be seeing, don't we, that, uh, that we're supposed to have this, this balance of which I speak. Uh, on the one hand, that we're not supposed to be dismissing. On the other hand that we're not supposed to live out like we're living in the Old Testament times. We need to be seeing the ways that we live in distinction uh, from those Old Testament days, uh, but also to see our connection with the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, there, there's a balance that has to be kept between the two, right? Between discontinuity on the one hand and continuity on the other hand, discontinuity with the Old Testament and continuity with the Old Testament. There's a middle road there. There are those things that, that even as our passage reminds us, are obsolete and that they are disappearing. But then there are those principles of the Old Testament that remain with us, which even the passage speaks of as well. Talks about those things that are have that obsolescence about them, this obsolete element, but yet we still refer back to the Old Testament as that which are words that are important for us in the Christian walk. So we want to take a look at that this evening, that uh, as we try to keep that balance, as we respond to the Old Testament as New Testament believers, recognizing the difference about the two testaments, 
but then also the tie between the two testaments. And that's, that's where we keep the balance. And first the need for seeing that, that discontinuity between the old and the new, or to see the difference about the two testaments. Because, of course, there are marked differences, aren't there, between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament testifies to Christ's coming, while the New Testament testifies that Christ has come. The Old Testament times were times, like we hear in our passage, of shadows that come to reality in Jesus Christ, which is testified in the New. The Old Testament times are, are times of promise of Christ's coming, while the New Testament times are where those promises come to pass. They come to fulfillment. They come to completion, don't they, in the coming of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament times were filled with much in the way of, of ceremony, of, of symbol, of, of pomp. And that was all keeping with that, that time frame, that that era in which the Old Testament found itself, where there was this shadowy uh, experience, a promise of that which was yet to come, but which had not yet been seen. And the difference that way is, is what the New Testament believer needs to understand, that those, that those times of, of ceremony and symbol are, are minimized in our time when such ceremonies and, and symbols are no longer needed because of Christ's coming to fulfill them. Seeing is believing. That's a common thing you hear in, in our day. And it's not something that's been unheard of throughout any day, no matter what time of history. Seeing is believing. Uh, rather than hearing is believing. Or believing is seeing. But that, that seeing is believing has always been the tendency of the sinful heart. We see, we, we see that when we look at the, 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 the gospel writers and as they write about all the magnificent things that Jesus Christ was able to do. And then people would still be saying, well, give us a sign to prove that you are who you are. The church throughout its history has had a battle against the mentality of, of seeing is believing. And whether it's been <clears throat> images or ceremonies or added sacraments or, or plays or shows or symbols or colors or vestments or pageantry or pomp and circumstance and procession, leaders are tempted to think that these kind of, of showy liturgies are going to be what people need. And they need that so that, or to experience, in order for them to come to faith, or be bolstered in the faith, or to make their, their faith more meaningful, more touching. Worship preparation in, 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 the, in that sense is often so much a stress to appeal to the eye, to stimulate the eye. And, and people will come then, and people's interests will be kept, and and faith will be fostered. Create a spectacle. Create an experience. And that's so that's oftentimes what you'll hear. When you come to where we are, then you will experience worship. And yet faith comes by hearing. 
and hearing by the Word of God. You know, what, what people often fail to see is that such appeals to the eye do not keep worship simple. Those appeals to the eye tend to complicate worship. Symbols need to be explained. Shows need to be explained. And such things that are supposed to make for more exciting and stimulating worship and education for the worshiper end up making for more distracting worship. Worship that's meant primarily for God in the first place. You'd think we were going to worship primarily for ourselves. We're supposed to be coming to worship primarily for God. Seeing is believing ends up adding things to worship that, that either are obsolete or are not in conformity to what God wants our worship to be. And, and so we think we're, we're being up to date and we're being special and we're being innovative and we're being cutting edge, but we're actually going backwards in time. Instead of relying on the, the Word and the, and the Spirit for the proclamation of Christ, we rely on ourselves often for the purpose of, of satisfying our own senses and wants and that of other people. So what ends up happening with the stress on, on the show and the showy and the shiny and the ceremonial and the symbolic and the innovative today is that we end up going back to a time that already had its day. We're going back to the Old Testament, even though we're in the New. The reason there was so much symbolism, after all, in the Old Testament is that it was directing our attention to him who had yet to come, whose glory we had yet to behold, except in some exceptional theophanies, these, these times where th there were these somewhat pre-incarnate times of Christ that were experienced. <clears throat> but now that he's come, even Jesus Christ, so much of that from the old is no longer needed in the new. And so what happens with that? Well, worship can become so much simpler, so much more direct, so much more, in that sense, you might say, personal, as we rely on the Word to dictate it, and also God's Spirit to bless it in our lives. Instead of appealing to the eye, we appeal to the ear, by which the Word is heard as, as the Word is proclaimed, and we respond in kind with the primary purpose of of worshiping God. We have that relationship with God established much more directly. No longer behind curtains and, and uh, slivered off for the priesthood. Kept at arm's length from our God. But yeah, we'll see this soon, but the primary work of the, sh the church isn't to show but it's the word of the Lord. The primary purpose of worship is, is not our viewing pleasure. 
we can get that in all kinds of other ways in this day and age especially. The technology that's out there is allowing us to have that viewing pleasure in, uh, in droves. Or we can go watch a concert. It may seem simple, but it's often missed. The primary purpose of worship is the worship of our God. It's directed to our God. It's dictated by the word of God as we respond to the gospel word of God. He speaks, we respond. So much simpler, so much more relational, so much more direct. Part of the reason that our worship doesn't reflect the old covenant is because, as our passage says, so much of that has become obsolete in the last verse there of our passage. We don't have a priesthood in the way of the old covenant. Because our high priest serves in heaven and not on earth. And we don't have an altar in our worship. And we don't have blood everywhere either for that matter because the sacrifice of the Lord has occurred once for all. A reminder and assurance of that comes in a couple of weeks again, Lord willing, whether, whenever when we partake of the Lord's Supper once again. And even our church itself is, is really not a, a sanctuary in, in that Old Testament sense, is it? There's nothing in and of itself here that this is sacred, except for when God's people are here and we're lifted up into heavenly places, right? It's more of a, we recognize that sanctuary as a, as a term to say, well, this is where we come to worship. This is our worship area. And it's the fellowship hall back there. But, but, but we don't look at this place in that Old Testament sense. Certainly not like the temple of old, because, because where we end up worshiping in the true sanctuary, according to the word, is in heavenly places where Christ dwells. Right? That, that's what makes it better in the Old Testament way. Even the Old Testament temple, as our passage reminds us, was but a copy of, of the heavenly throne room of God, which is where Christ it was, and by God's grace, and by the intercession of Christ, that's where we are. What makes New Testament worship better that way, then, it's not what we conjure up. We don't have to sit there in a, in a room and try to figure out ways uh, to make things a little bit more exciting for people. Because we couldn't do that. It's already been done. What makes worship better is the better mediator. Right? It's the better high priest after the order of, of, of Melchizedek. And the fact that through him we may do what the Old Testament people could never do. And that is that we can come into the presence of God in the heavenly holy of holies. Christ made worship better. And shall we say, exciting, joyful, reverence, reverent to be sure, but joyful. We get to come into the presence of God, not in that heavenly, not in that earthly holy of holies that nobody was ever able to get into except for the priest once a year. 
but into the heavenly holy of holy where Christ is interceding on our behalf. And so if people want to get excited about worship, they need to think about who made it exciting. We have to think about our worship in the gospel truth of God's word. We worship him in spirit and truth that way. And, and when we keep in mind these truths that get brought to us to help us understand how our worship is already better, well, then we won't have a hard time getting excited for worship, will we? Because when we worship, we worship in the heavenly presence of God through Jesus Christ. Our worship is better, not because of how innovative we are, but how much better of a mediator the Savior Jesus Christ has been for us as a heavenly high priest. He's, he's the reason why worship is even possible. Why it's excellent. Why it's privilege. Why it's precious. He's the reason why we can worship in the presence of God at all. We don't need anything more than Jesus Christ to excite us, to motivate us, to, to worship when we've come to know Him through faith as our Savior and King. And He calls us into His holy presence. He's reason enough. At the same time, we don't want to see ourselves disconnecting ourselves from the Old Testament, do we? That can be just as much a danger as missing the differences between the old and the new. And if we fail to see how the principles of the Old Testament continue to live out in the lives of New Testament believers, we can make some very grave errors. We can fail to understand what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. We can fail to see that the gospel of Jesus Christ was found in the Old Testament already, just as it's found in the New Testament. And in the process, when we fail to see that, we misinterpret Scripture. We can fail to see that God's covenant ways, though new in Jesus Christ, are, are not new in the sense of, let's say, one new car replacing another old one, but rather like a rosebud that comes to full flock. There's changes, but there's this organic similarity. So much that is taught in the New Testament and in our passage as well, again, as I mentioned, is explicitly based on what has been promised and taught in the Old. Our very passage has that quotation from Jeremiah 31. And the New Covenant prophesied there being used in New Testament instruction here. We can't just throw out the Old Testament and say, well, well, that was just for Israel back then. Because the covenant people of Israel comprised the church of the Old Testament, and in that way, we're, they were our, our spiritual forefathers. If Abraham is our spiritual father of faith, then, then can we neglect what is said of him in Genesis? 
some would say that we should set aside the Ten Commandments because they were for Israel and, and we are the church who, who lives by the Spirit. Well, that's a dangerous thing. Some would say that the Old Testament God was a God of, of blood and judgment, but the New Testament God, a God of mercy and grace. What a stereotype. The one God who speaks in, in both testimonies, uh, or testaments of his covenant mercies and promises to us and our children. The Christ-centered people of God in the New Testament are not supposed to ignore the Old Testament. When the Old Testament, though shadowy, is nevertheless a Christ-centered Old Testament. It's not without purpose and, and gravity that the Apostle would tell us in 2 Timothy 3, in the last letter he probably wrote, that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for us to be the kind of people that God has called us to be. The Apostle would tell us also in Romans 15, 4, that the scriptures were given to us for our encouragement. And he wasn't just speaking about Matthew to Revelation, but Genesis to Malachi as well. Jesus came not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And the reason for all that is because while there's a distinction between what's old and new, so that we know that there are those ceremonies and symbols within the Old Testament that cease because of Christ's coming. The old and the new, nevertheless, make for one word of God. All worthy of our faith, all worthy of regulating our faith and practice when the Holy Spirit, when through the Holy Spirit, I should say, we see them both through the person to whom they all point the Lord Jesus Christ in the old, him coming, in the new, of having come. So when you and I read through Genesis or Leviticus or Psalms or Proverbs or Micah, they require a, a faithful response. No less than when we read from Matthew or Romans or Jude. From them we we learn about the holy and saving God in Jesus Christ and our calling in faith to live our lives in gratitude to him for his saving work in Christ. Only we have to do so with balance, don't we? We distinguish the New Testament times from the Old Testament times, but we also respect the covenant ties that bind us to the times of promise and shadow. All scriptures profitable to us. All of it. And God help us to see that as gospel believers in Jesus Christ to whom all the scriptures point both old and new. Amen. Let's take a moment, shall we, to respond in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, once again, uh, we're glad for the wisdom that the scriptures bring to us, reminding us of principles of the old that continue to profit us, and then also recognizing the distinctive times in which we live because Christ has come 
We pray, Lord, that through it all it would make a difference then in the way that we approach our faith, our worship, our way of life, so that we might live in that way that you called us, to have that balance, to understand the differences between the two Testaments, but also the ties between the two Testaments, especially as they all point us, as we're called to be finding ourselves, directing our own attention to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we might have eyes to see Jesus, who is that one who is at your right hand and, and the one who, along with you in the Spirit, bless us to such an extent that we may worship you in heavenly places thanks to the gospel and the intercessory work of your Spirit and your Son. So may we take joy then in those uh, wisdoms that help us, Lord, to keep that good balance that we need to keep so that we might live the Christian life in the way that you would have us live it. We pray that you would hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.